Dan, you were in my dream last night, and I, I mean that in a non-creepy way. I take it in a non-creepy way. Okay. Um, but I feel like it was extremely subject supposed to know related because in the dream, we were in the recording studio um, and I was trying to make a point, you know, I was trying to be like very, very like forceful and persuasive and, you know, like my like Professor Abby hat on and all of that. And you kept hitting the button on the mixing board that turns me into a chipmunk. Nice. Oh, (laughs) no. I know. It was like, it was such a weird riff on like the... I, I secretly believe that all academics have some version of the anxiety dream where you have to go back and like, like, or at least I have the, the dream where I find myself back in my freshman year of college and I have to like major in a real thing or like some version of that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but, but this was, this was very akin to it. And so I kept, I was like, well, you know, Lacan, blah, 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 blah. And then all of a sudden, it started to, oh, oh, yeah, ah, I became a chipmunk and it was horrible. I enjoyed flexing this kind of petty power, you actually. Not, that soundboard was, oh, yeah. no. well, I, I like this. This okay, is fun. Make, make it stop. No. Please? Yeah. Um, but the, the, the real, the real uh, joke is on me because only Mike One can be the chipmunk. Yeah. <laughs> which yep. feels like, and I am Mike One. Oh, yeah, that's right. Patrick, you cannot be chipmunked. You are unchipmunkable. You're unchipmunkable. So th- those big colorful squares on the thing, they don't... It only me. affects the first track. I don't know why. So I don't I, know why. You can't stop me or center no. me or deform me. I could speak my truth. I could get fired for my truth. This is great. <laughs> I mean, in the sense that you're your own boss, you could be fired for your truth. Unless you want to make me your boss as Mike One. <laughs> I'm having a crisis of executive function in terms of mapping out my inner org chart at the moment, and I'm not really sure who is the boss. I can't hold space for this at this this moment. The CEO has ADD at the moment and is completely unable to. Oh, honey, you're not the CEO. (laughs) I think we both know that. Uh, I just like the arbitrary nature of this board having special effects go through a particular channel. That like hardware requirement has wheedled its way into being a central mechanic in a dream you had. I know. That's pretty great. Talk about mediation. Actually, that's an interesting thing. Yeah. Do you ever like see how often are your dreams in the third person? Like when I want, I'm wondering like, do you ever like have other fragmentary like encounters with your own senses, fragmentary style? Like do you glimpse your face in a mirror? Do you? It's never in a mirror, but I do see myself and this is kind of bleak, but it's like in dreams where I die before I wake up, I see my body. Like a third person video game. Yeah. You yeah, watch yeah. a lot of horror movies. Yo, I mean, well, I mean, I was dying in dreams long before I started watching movies. Aww. Yeah, this is a you just like that's normal. Doll, right? or? That's normal. Do you see yourself die in dreams? I really try to avoid having dreams, but <laughs> I mean, that's that's any means necessary. Actually, I'm trying to think about like, do you ever have dreams where you are you experience the phenomena that Lacan describes here as like the the coming to part, like your your body falling apart or like teeth falling apart like what's our I think that's a very common dream especially teeth. losing teeth I'm thinking about how weird it is in these dreams that you were describing that there's this kind of this theme of even your dream self is mediated right it's even your your voice in the dream is mediated through the soundboard right and it, to be clear I am not usually a chipmunk in my dreams but I, I, honestly do any of you guys listen like enjoy listening to the sound of your own voice when it's mediated in waking life Yes. Really? Well, you have a lovely voice, yeah. But I can't stand 
looking at photographs of myself. And I have been thinking oh. about that as, as we've been spending time with, with the mirror stage. Um, because there is this idea in some ways of like the self in the mirror as like the real, I mean, that's not, not, not like any unreal, but as, as the, as like the whole or like the somehow reassuring and I've always found it to be like sort of horrifying. I mean, I don't mean my, my face is horrible. My, my face is fine. <laughs> but I do find every single time there's a photograph of myself, I'm just like, that can't possibly. Like it's it's so distant from, from my sense of mm-hmm. myself as like a being moving through space and like being like efficacious in the world. Would you describe that feeling of like, alienation or like discomfort with your mediated image as being similar to the feeling of anxiety that you get in dreams when it feels like your, your body is like not your own or it's coming apart. Like I'm trying to wonder if like our everyday experiences of like, Oh, that's not me. Or I can't believe I look like that. Or in my case, I hate the way my own voice sounds. Oh God. Yeah. Like I'm thinking now of like the family photo, like everyone gets together and they smile for the thing and that's like the proof that Christmas was good. Yes. But in fact, Christmas was shit. It depends whether you're in the photo. I'm thinking about like the other day, Dan, you you and, and Mahalia, that's that's Dan's wife, were, were gone. And so I, I took that opportunity to not only, you know, let the dog out, but to spend several hours on the couch hugging Dan oh, yeah. Mahalia's he's a good dog. dog. Yeah. Well, he's he's my favorite. Um, behind his favorite spot, there are all of these photos of you and Mahalia like through mm. time. And maybe because I'm not in them, I'm like, I'm very captivated by like what's being projected there is like this, this like ideal couple form. Like it really, like it lands for me in some way where I'm like, and I believe that you looking at that would feel the same. Whereas like. That's why it's behind the couch and not in front of it. <laughs> it's, it's to my back. No, that's, I, I, you're, aren't you describing like the joys of like voyeurism? I'm thinking about that like line from Modest Mouse, right? Like other people's lives are more interesting because they aren't mine, right? And I think that is part of it. And there is a voyeuristic component, but also just in the register that we've been talking about, an image of another person that another person has chosen to put in the world has a togetherness to it, right? Whereas the image of yourself, or at least the fantasy of a togetherness that we can project onto it, like Mm -hmm. that person looks together, like they've got their stuff together. Whereas our pictures of ourselves are more anxious in some way, or at least they can be the grounds for a certain type of anxiety, even as also, you know, they can be triggers for love or memory or all these other things. I guess what I'm really struck by is how in our dreams and on our mantelpieces are representations of ourself or like our experiences of identity mm-hmm. are incredibly layered and kind of, well, that initial joy of the infant in our story like that unequivocal pleasure. Which uh-huh. is over, yeah, it's me. <laughs> it's me, baby. There's a paradox to this tragedy, right? Insofar as that our identities are, per this essay, constituted through a, an alienating relationship to ourselves, right? As we'll get into. Mm-hmm. But that at least initially, Lacan presents this as, having, as being a source of joy. Yet so often in our adult lives, it's an experience of barely holding it together, of, of discomfort, of extended effort trying to prettify yourself and in any event a feeling of insufficiency which more often than not expresses itself by the assumption that other people have the thing that you don't 
listening to Ordinary Unhappiness, a podcast about psychoanalysis, politics, pop culture, and the ways we suffer now. I'm Abby Kluchin. I'm Patrick Blanchfield. I'm Dan Yowell. And today we are back for the third and what we, do I want to say promise? We got this. We can do yeah, this. Yeah, we can yes. do this. All right. All right. Go team. We can, we can, we can finish a five-page essay in three episodes. <laughs> I believe in us even more than I believe in the inexhaustibility of meaning. Actually arrive at the ending as opposed to asymptotically approaching and deferring and otherwise failing to satisfy. We got to, because I can't, we can't make any more difference jokes no, around the house. No, like, I've just, had enough. Yeah, it's like, that's, yeah. it's, it's enough. We already have um, one perpetual project. We can't have two. Wait, uh, oh, that's the standard edition. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I yeah. thought you meant like ourselves. <laughs> oh, <I'll, laughs> well, no, you're right. <laughs> Funny you Patrick's, should say that. Patrick's working on slowing down. <laughs> I'm working, what are we all working on? We're I'm, all working on trying to approach a cohesive sense of subjectivity and authentic identity, which is ontologically precluded from us by the nature of the human condition. Yeah, cool. Okay. So I'm let's, die. so so <laughs> yeah, so sorry, we might not no, be able no, to no. do that but we can finish an essay and an episode. Um where we left off, can we can we do a brief recap? Episode 1 we left off with the joyful baby in the mirror. Episode 2 we left off we were in a less less hopeful place um toggling back and forth between identification and misrecognition. Yeah. Like we, we, well, we began the whole thing by being very, by stipulating as Lacan kind of grandly gestures in the beginning of the essay, that this is a philosophical account, right? Like he begins by saying, this is whatever our experience is of psychoanalysis or our experience of experience in psychoanalysis or as psychoanalyst or whatever the hell it sets us at odds with the Cartesian cogito yes. and and the uh, a solidity of the ego and its perceptions of the world, but also its perceptions of itself, which are what Lacan goes at as being the most fallible link in the chain, right? And to do that, after talking a lot about animals and uh, a whole menagerie of, of things from primates to bugs, all of which give us these examples of like, creatures whose development is more or less modeled biologically or in the case of like uh, literal insects, there's this idea of like the imago, like the final form of the thing, a destined development or mm -hmm. growth. He gives us something else, uh, something which is not quite biological and not quite precisely developmentally grounded to psychology, but instead a sort of parable. Uh, what we've chosen to read is a philosophical parable. Mm -hmm. And that is the this baby before the mirror who Lacan tells us uh, experiences a ambiguous self-identification or discovery of their self in the image, uh, which represents, uh, as you know, uh, Malcolm Bowie calls it the nascent form of the ego, yes. Cartesian or otherwise, and which sets the child on a kind of trajectory whereby alienation and recognition are inextricable. So where I want to pick up now um, is with where you might be relieved or you might be disappointed, I don't know, um, to learn is the last big, long block quote that we're going to get into. Um, and it's a little bit after we left off. Um, in the first paragraph, you're going to hear is in some ways recapitulating some of what Patrick just said. Um, but then it's going to take us into the form of 
the ego as it is experienced as like a, I guess, I guess we're kind of going with the insect stuff, a, a kind of carapace or, or armor, um, or, you know, what, what later, um, Anna Freud drawing on, I think it's Wilhelm Reich's, uh, formulation we'll call character armor. This development is experienced as a temporal dialectic that decisively projects the individual's formation into history. The mirror stage is a drama whose internal pressure pushes precipitously from insufficiency to anticipation. And for the subject caught up in the lure of spatial identification, turns out fantasies that proceed from a fragmented image of the body to what I will call an orthopedic form of its totality and to the finally donned armor of an alienating identity that will mark his entire mental development with its rigid structure. Thus, the shattering of the Innenwelt to Umwelt circle gives rise to an inexhaustible squaring of the ego's audits. This fragmented body, another expression I have gotten accepted into the French school's system of theoretical references, is regularly manifested in dreams when the movement of an analysis reaches a certain level of aggressive disintegration of the individual. It then appears in the form of disconnected limbs or of organs exoscopically represented, growing wings and taking up arms for internal persecutions that the visionary Hieronymus Bosch fixed for all time in painting in their ascent in the 15th century to the imaginary zenith of modern man. But this form turns out to be tangible, even at the organic level, in the lines of fragilization that define the hysterics phantasmatic anatomy, which is manifested in schizoid and spasmodic symptoms. Correlatively, the eye formation is symbolized in dreams by a fortified camp or even a stadium, distributing between the arena within its walls and its outer border of gravel pits and marshes to opposed fields of battle where the subject bogs down in his quest for the proud, remote inner castle whose form sometimes juxtaposed in the same scenario, strikingly symbolizes the id. Similarly, though here in the mental sphere, we find fortified structures constructed, the metaphors for which arise spontaneously, as if deriving from the subject's very symptoms, to designate the mechanisms of obsessive neurosis, inversion, isolation, reduplication, undoing what has been done, and displacement. Close quote. I want to say one or two things just before for clarification before we unpack this a little bit more. Um, I think I might have said this in the previous, but but the Innenwelt and Umwelt, um, I think we've talked about in, in some ways, but really it is it's the inner world and then the 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 external world that as one is experiencing it. So that's important. I also want to just say that there's that, it sounds like I'm making up a word, fragilization, um, but actually in French, there is a verb, fragiliser, like to fragilize, um, which I'm a little bit obsessed with because I once wrote something about it in Julia Kristeva about the idea of a text that could literally make one more fragile, like the mm. effects of, the, of, of reading something could actually work on your already existing um, sort of um, fault lines, I suppose. Uh, but so 
you know, think about fragmentation, but also think about, again, like fragilization, right? And all of the sort of attendant or associated metaphors, images that, that, that you might want to hear there. Um, I don't, because I don't think fragmentation and fragilization are the same thing, but I do think they are related in an important way. And then the third thing is just to draw attention to not only is, is this the place where Lacan here draws on that, uh, like very explicitly draws on the pun in the title, um, um, le, le Stade de Miroir, right? The, the, the stage, but also the stadium or arena. But for those of you who have been immersed in Freud or her, those of you who work in academia and thus probably one way or another have had to teach civilization and its discontents over and over, um, you're going to hear that armed camp bit and, and think, I, I think quite rightly, of the famous section in Civilization and its Discontents where Freud is talking about the psyche as not only a city, but as an occupied city, a city that is that is garrisoned. Um, so we have this whole like really interesting and competing set of metaphors here, um, right? The, the sort of like the insect-like carapace, the arm, the armoredness, like the war camp. Um, but it's also like this camp that is beset or garrisoned, right? It's sort of riven from outside, yeah. right? And and so we have we have armor, but we also have fragmentation and fragilization. Not entirely coincidentally, the the word in in English, and I believe in French for the occupation a synonym for the occupation of uh a space with troops and specifically for a city is an investment. Yeah. If this would be in, in German, right. For Freud, Besetzung, yeah. which we translate as cathexis, but in French would, would be investment yeah. also. I want us to linger with this idea of an investment as yeah. we look at this real Please. quick, both because I think one thing that may be kind of clear at this point is that this essay is actually quite repetitive in some ways. Yeah, it's not just us. Um, no, it's not just <laughs> us. But, Although we might feel like it is. But but also that part of the character of that repetition is communicative, i.e. it's this layering on of these multiple images uh, of these different sort of like tropes of like being captured, of being constrained, of being deluded, of being, well, lured or trapped yeah. Right. And these images, whether they be the hard bodied uh, chitinous form of a, of a beetle or the uh, walls and crenellations of a castle. I think it's that layering of these images gives you a vibe, but it also gives you a sense of it's like a world building exercise or like it adds these. We can use metaphors to arrive at a sense of what he's talking about through this overdetermined layering of repetitions. And so just to recapitulate the repetition here is this idea that, well, actually Malcolm Bowie delightfully glosses this. Yeah. So um, the child, as opposed to the chimpanzee, has a perverse will. Where the chimpanzee is able to recognize that the mirror image is an epistemological void and to turn his attention elsewhere, the child has a perverse will to remain deluded. The child's attention is seized, captate, by the firm spatial relationship between its real body and its specular body, and between body and setting within the specular image, he or she is captivated, captivate, 
But the term that Lacan prefers to either of these and which harnesses and outstrips their combined expressive power is the moral and legal captation, which is the complex geometry of body, setting, and mirror working upon the individual as a ruse, a deception, an inveiglement. The mirror, seemingly so consoling and advantageous to the infant, is a trap and a decoy, a lure right in the French. Now, this idea, just to, I think he, he, he summarizes this drama beautifully, right? But the idea of like, it's a trap that mm. you're initially drawn into with this investment of pleasure, but then once you're in it, well, it's a trap, right? And we're operating in a, as ever, a psychodynamic perspective or a psychoanalytic perspective more broadly. But what that emphasizes is dynamic, i.e. ongoing processes. Yes. And so the idea here is that that initial investment in what Lacan calls a gestalt, right, as a unity, that messiness in your body reproduced in the mirror that you now have consolidated in the mirror and identify with is a, that's, well, first, that's the result of an investment. It gives us pleasure, but it's not just a one-time investment. It's, it sets you in this trap that you're always working against to sort of find yourself as authentic or to be secure in some sort of identitarian mode. Now, what this suggests as a correlate to the idea of that this is an investment, and this is a, a classic psychoanalytic way of thinking about it, is that under circumstances of duress, i.e. when our energies uh, and libidinal investments, or like our sense of self more generally, our ability to parse experiences, are, are flag or are overwhelmed or come under stress, then that can be expressed pathologically. But also in moments of disinhibition, i.e. dreaming in quote-unquote normal people, there might be some expression of that uh, initial investment there too. And so here, what Lacan does for us is he says that in dreams, we frequently get the image of the self as like this castle, right? Or as like the house that needs to be protected. Um, whereas in other dreams, we also have expressions about that anxiety that's ongoing, that the body is going to fall apart. And here, just to close this out, in cases of severe traumatic distress, what he here calls hysteria, or very difficult, chaotic, and painful personality organizations, right? Or psychotic episodes. That investment is so taxed, or there's so many other pressures pulling at it, that it no longer becomes tenable. And so you have fantasies or hallucinations of your body falling apart, or you're obsessed with images of people being cut up. Or you're, in, in other words, these limit case examples of pathology and our normal experiences of both dreaming and also of metaphor furnish us images of this basic scene of the constitution of self as actually a misrecognition. There's some important material here that's a sort of is it inside baseball? Yes. Is it important? Also, yes. So I want to talk about that. But first, there's one more passage that I want to read where Lacan is specifically talking about the exit from the mirror stage. Um, so for those of you who are actually looking at this with us, which from from what we've been hearing from you is, is actually a remarkable number of people. Bless you. This is This is now on the next page. 
This moment at which the mirror stage comes to an end inaugurates through identification with the imago of one semblable and the drama of primordial jealousy, the dialectic that will henceforth link the eye to socially elaborated situations. It is this moment that decisively tips the whole of human knowledge into being mediated by the other's desire, constitutes its objects in an abstract equivalence due to competition from other people, and turns the eye into an apparatus to which every instinctual pressure constitutes a danger, even if it corresponds to a natural maturation process. And so, again, to think of it in these terms of investment or energy, the idea here is that this originary investment in yourself, but that self is a fictional thing, is mm-hmm. not who you actually are. Mm-hmm. The investment of, in the fictive self. The investment in the fictive self is, well, Lacan will sometimes talk about the language, he'll play a lot with the language of duping or being tricked, right? Uh, Bowie has this lovely line, which is that the idea that even in the absence from the scene of anyone who could be thought of as a responsible agent, falsehood and underhandedness are somehow ingrained into the ego during its first formative moments. And the idea here is that because your subjectivity or your own relationship is constituted by this willful projection of yourself or the willful projection of energy into something that you are not that creates the self, Mm -hmm. right? Which is a Again, it inscribes alienation Mm -hmm. in all the senses, if you want it to have, from psychological, existential to Marxist, Yeah, right? In the basic creation of the subject, then subsequent encounters with other people, institutions, narratives, ideas, whatever, anything else that operates on the template of saying, this is you, this is who you should be, Yeah, right? Right. Will... Speak to that desire, that desire for certainty and authenticity and cohesion, and exist in relation to those energies and investments that we have in who we think we are. And so when that's challenged, or when other modes of stuff comes up that goes against that, we get anxious or or otherwise sort of askew. I'm wondering if I can echo this back to you in other words to see if I can wrap my head around it in like a different way. So the child seeing their reflection in the mirror takes, do they take on the position of the other with all of the baggage that comes with your assumptions about the other in order to see themselves as an individual for the first time, meaning that that, that perception of themselves is through this filter of what they imagine the other expects of them, which is also something above and beyond what they currently are. It's like unrealized potential. Yes. And then as the other, as, as they're, conceptions of what the other is and what expect from them changes, grows, gets pressures put upon it that jeopardizes that individual self that they saw when they were in that position. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. And, 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 yeah. and beautiful. The, and we could say this just to really underscore the point about like what, what you're saying and what Bowie is saying, right? There may be others in, in the sense of other people, yeah. other institutions that come later. But the basic experience of yourself is as another. Yes. And yeah. There's a lovely line in French here that may be helpful, much as this line with the semblable uh, invokes Baudelaire, sort of like my, my, my likeness, my comrade, my brother, right? This kind of indictment of, of the other. Mon frère. 
Yeah, uh, my reader as well. Mm. But the Rimbaud line, which is for another poet, is j'ai et un autre. The other is already there in me. Yeah, the call is coming from inside the house. Yes. And that non-self-identity primes you for everything forward. Yeah, and but I, I mean, yes, 100%. Um, and what I want to point out about the turning point from what Dan just said to what happens in the passage that I just read is that this is the introduction of, of the other that is not the other that constitutes the self, right? So like the social other, right? So alterity, otherness is always present. I'm sorry if we're like beating a dead horse at this point, um, but I'm going to risk being repetitive rather than being uh, misunderstood. The other is always constitutive to, to the formation of the self, but the exit from the mirror stage even if there are there are ways in which you know we're always it, it is still it is still a stage yeah. even if we can also read it as a parable about identity and identity formation um you know lacan is still thinking about like an actual baby we're doing in some ways a fairly literal reading of this essay because it will often get taught as you know like the mirror is the mother um, not the actual mirror, you know, the mirror is other people um, or and or the exit from the mirror stage is the entrance into the Lacanian symbolic yeah. into for, out of the realm of when I say imaginary right now, I'm, I'm just trying to conjure image um, out of the realm of, of the imaginary and into the symbolic, into the space of of linguistic signification um, out of the realm of the mother into the realm of the father. And I'm not saying that's not all there and available, but we're trying to really just kind of be like, what is in this text? What is the, what is the plain meaning? And what it is, as we see here, is the self is always formed in relationship to this fundamental alterity um, with which it is riven, Yet the exit from the mirror stage marks the entrance of the self into the social and into actual, actually existing concrete others in the world. I want to put a very fine point on this question of exiting the mirror stage with an eye towards the ending. But for now, I think the thing to say here, right, is that the mirror stage represents a template of, well, you're being trapped in a relationship to your own self, or rather the constitution of subjectivity of this thing called the ego depends upon a, well, it depends on mediation. And thus it's another way of saying this, it's otherness, right? Yourself, there's an other in you that makes you you, abstractly, structurally. And, and the exit that we're talking about is not a solution to that problem no. or an alternative to that it's problem. It's a multiplication right? of that problem. <laughs> it's just you're now coming, basically you've you're in, it's, you're still in the trap of the mirror stage insofar as you have an ego and are marked by investments in logics of identity. Right. But now instead of it being the other that, that is you, it is right. other others, right? And that's where it's other people coming from the outside. It's other people, whether they be, well, 
you know, a related concept here is Louis Althusser's police officer who yells, hey, you, and you turn around. Mm -hmm. Or, and this is, I think, very directly where we're going, the idea of your being initially primed for mediated visions of yourself Mm -hmm. that are other than your actual experience and which then make intelligible your experience kind of primes you for specific others or other others to come along and give you accounts of, well, what your development must be like according to their narrative explanatory system. Be a man. Right. What your uh, developmental neuroses or problems may be from a technical psychoanalytic framework. This uh, magnification that happens with the other, other, like all the others here, it, it feels like the repetition that you were describing, Lacan, he's piling metaphor on top of metaphor throughout this paper. But that also seems to mirror the way this alienation compounds as new like variables and others get yes. piled on. Yeah. And of course, you know, and these others are other, without even getting the fact that those others are also other human beings yep. who are constituted in other similar realms of uh, regimes of non-self-identity and may have their own anxieties and investments and baggage, so to speak. It is like, you could see it sort of functioning as like the, the mental image I almost have is of like the adult version of the mirror stage, right? Is the person looking on Instagram being like, okay, now this fit, that's going to be the new me. Yeah. Right. Finally, this thing, which is I've discovered in the world is going to give me the best, most authentic fit for myself. Right. And of course, the experience that we have of that is, is generally that it's not, it doesn't arrive or then you need to buy something else otherwise. Or you realize that the thing that they were selling you or convincing you of is functionally impossible. And it's actually the aspiration that's being marketed and not really anything attainable. Exactly. And you put that clothing alongside the thing you have to wear for work. If you have a job where you have, you have to wear certain things for work. And that's also another standard, which you are graded against. So in other words, this, like you're basically kind of ontologically groomed to continually be in search of discourses, institutions, experiences that allow you to declare, oh, this is me. I'm comfortable with me. This is who I truly am. I finally have arrived at self-identity. But that's impossible. You can never get there, is the Lacanian idea. Before we move on to the sort of closing moments of this text and, and spin out some of the implications can we talk a little bit about hmm, what you could call a bit of like an internal polemic in within this? It's a, it's a short internal polemic, um, but directed towards Anna Freud, ego psychology, um, and what that represents. Yeah, and Klein comes in for some some targeting here too. Yeah. Lacan not only has a critique of this thing that he calls the ego and which he endows with a kind of like a tyranny and a fragility. And also, well, as we were just describing with these dreams or these psychotic fantasies, right? As a site of, of primary aggression or anxiety of unfulfillment. Like you have a, you know, on some, some part of you knows this thing is not you and may resent it. Or some part of you may resent continually looking for some things. But that notion of the ego is not the notion of the ego that a lot of other thinkers propound. And some of those uh, thinkers in schools like ego psychology think like to think of the ego as like an adaptive, robust organ. For anybody who is, say, not necessarily steeped in psychoanalytic literature, but has spent some time uh, in talk therapy, 
in, I don't know, in the last while. <laughs> I mean, like ego psychology won in, in some ways. So if you've ever heard somebody talk about like a therapeutic alliance, for instance, that's, that's language that comes from ego psychology. Um, the idea that, that the ego is, 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 I don't exactly want to say a friend or a potential friend, but that I almost want to invoke here, like the distinction in Buddhist philosophy between ultimate and conventional truth. Yeah. Um, and you know, like it's true that, when I say I, what that I indexes is at every single time that I have said it throughout the history of my of my life, it indexes something different, right? It's a moving target. Um, it is it is something that is in fact constituted in and through the relation to the other. That feels that feels like correct to me to say. And so there is no there is no like I. There's no Abby that you can absolutely pin down and be like that, that thing right there. Nonetheless, if Dan or Patrick or my students or my parents or anyone else in my life would like to have a conversation with me, interact with me, for me, uh, in order to get out of bed and navigate the many roles that I have in the world, I have to, I have to act as though that changing self is something other than wholly fictive, right? Okay, so that's maybe that's the sort of like ultimate Lacanian truth of yeah. it. And and when in, in ego psychology, you get what I would call an eminently practical realization that you actually have to be able, you you can't just every single time you say I or act like a, a self with some sort of structure of organization and coherence over time, you can't actually dwell in in the existential rivenness by alterity in order to get shit done. You you can't do it, right? You need some sort of sense that you are a unified self, even though that's not like strictly true, right? And so ego psychology takes that that sort of, I guess, conventional truth and and runs with it. Um, and and treats the idea of the ego as as something not to be you know named as ultimately metaphysically true, but as something that functionally needs to be experienced as integrated, and that that experience of the self is integrated, which involves a great number of defense mechanisms, which actually come to be uh, much of what you and others experience as your personality, that those defense mechanisms and that sense of self is, is generally speaking, a net positive. That's true. And I think for many ego psychologists, you, they'll even talk about the ego as like, it's, it's an organ that you develop. You actually want to flex it and strengthen it. It's yeah. better than, you know, like uh, being enthralled to either your, your, your more id-derived impulses or punishing superego functions, right? Sure. But, so in that way, what Lacan is doing here is actually a kind of polemical deformation or mischaracterization of ego psychology, because I think a lot of ego psychology Absolutely. is very useful. Uh, Absolutely. He's, he's drawing out a philosophical difference, and 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 I think he's yeah, he's being a little unfair. He's being, and he's also being unfair to Melanie Klein and Anna Freud, who come in who, both for both because they have different theories of the ego and of how the ego relates to aggression, but also ultimately like 
and possibly is also activated by the fact that they have actual experience dealing with child development and, and, and analyzing children, whereas this is but a parable for Lacan. But at any point, I think we can kind of be like, this is a a philosophical deformation and he's not being fair to them. And we could talk about all the it's different- It's a mischaracterization. Theory. Yeah, yeah it, it's, it's a polemic. We can talk about this, the technical reasons why, but I think where this goes and for him, what is most interesting, or at least for what's for us and most interesting in this essay is that he presents these schools of thought, these different schools of doing therapy as examples of discourses that essentially- have a model for how the subject should develop, what the person should ideally or most authentically be, and pathologized accounts of what they shouldn't. Yes, right? yes, and exactly. In that sense, for Lacan, if ego psychology emphasizes adaptation, you know, which it does, then that raises the suspicion that this is even more so than other schools of thought, a way of giving you a self or of pretend of giving you a model for the self that is an artifice of power. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. and th that causes you to invest in something that you aren't. And more broadly speaking here, at that point, he's he wants to go broader bore and using ego psychology, albeit unfairly to do this. He argues that the core idea of who you are as a stable thing that is ratified by how well you adapt to circumstances is more or less divorced from any consideration of what those circumstances actually are i.e. being a highly adapted ego, right? So like putting your ego back together so you can go to work as well as, as he suggests, like a concentration camp guard, right? Or a torturer. That to some extent, adaptation just means you're moving more frictionlessly against the social context. There's no moral or other sense to it. Right. And right. so for him, this emphasis on the ego, which he now starts describing as like a... And the freedom of the ego is a sort of a false freedom and represents, well, at least in its vibes, in its metaphorical recapitulation of capture, constraint, grand destinies, insufficiencies, barely constrained violence, uh, medical control, orthopedic models, biological destiny, religious narratives of who one must be, etc. It resembles various modes of like totalitarian social control or reduction of the human in terms of its possibilities to, well, what he calls like a freedom that is never so authentically affirmed as when it is within the walls of a prison. Right. So this is an, uh, it, it, he starts flirting here with a broadly existential critique. Yes. Of descriptive accounts of the ego and therapies of the ego that for him are actually prescriptive, tyrannical sort of refusals to recognize the alterity of the ego and that also put the person on a glide path towards, well, not changing or doubling down on that problem. So let me just read, just to kind of tie a bow on what you're saying, Patrick, let me read the line or two where Lacan really draws out um, the distinction between what he understands to be the sort of orientation of ego psychology towards the ego, um, which I would gloss as sort of like recognition, self-identity, congruence with the self versus his take, which is, again, as we've been, we've been saying, um, probably sort of ad nauseum about misrecognition. All right. So these notions, the notions generated by ego psychology. Okay. These notions are opposed by the whole of analytic experience insofar as it teaches us not to regard the ego as centered on the perception consciousness system, 
or as organized by the reality principle, the expression of a scientific bias most hostile to the dialectic of knowledge, but rather to take as our point of departure the function of misrecognition that characterizes the ego in all the defensive structures so forcefully articulated by Anna Freud. So in this in this way, Anna Freud comes in to stand. Anna Freud is like a whipping boy. Anna Freud is synecdoche for ego psychology. Yeah. I think he's thinking about her her you know her you know masterful book, uh, the ego and the mechanisms of defense. I think that's that's you know what this is. Um, and in the background, here, just, here. just sort of vital to say here, just to gloss one thing, is that ego psychology, as he is characterizing it at the time this paper is out, yeah. right, and which was it was already starting to become this in the first draft of the paper, but is now the dominant, is at the time of his writing, is the dominant school of psychoanalytic theory, but also psychoanalytic practice and, and most mental health practice yeah. in well, among very saliently for him, North America, mm-hmm. right, and parts of Britain. In other words, the people who supposedly won the war, the people who were anti-fascist, mm-hmm. and who are now giving us the freedom of market democracy and the loving, in no way paternalistic care of like the <laughs> of the national mm-hmm. health system. Or, and here is where I think we can start asking questions about like, well, what some others might call microfascism, et cetera. But like that, that the adaptation of working in the imperial core, so you can be a better Don Draper than ever, right? Right. To, to yeah. what are you yeah. adapting? Yes. Right. Yeah. Is 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 certainly is certainly the question. Well, a question. It, it essentially suggest it, it offers a suge- suggestion that other schools of psychoanalysis can be more or less uh, just sort of like feeding mechanisms for the reproduction of social systems of extraction, control, and violence, and alienation. As opposed to the truly radical. Yes. uh, And metaphysical correctness, I think, for Lacan of of what he's saying. And I don't disagree, Uh, honestly. Like, I think think that, that, that that's probably pretty right. Um, I think I think the subject is is uh, is fragmented from the beginning. I also kind of like having a self. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I've grown pretty attached to it. I think. The, I mean, yeah. when you when you have you have limit experiences of feeling, you know, a radical fragmentation of selfhood. That's a scary feeling, yeah. right? And 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 I'm not saying that. I'm saying that descriptively. Yes. Yes. Um, but the point is that Lacan can be right. Um, but the, the sort of like to court to, uh, dismissal of, of ego psychology is a polemic. Yeah. So, so this brings us to where a, a lovely point, right? Because there are people who will take a kind of like a casual or constructive view of Lacanian slash more broadly postmodern psychoanalysis. And then maybe they'll throw in some Deleuze and Guattari, et cetera. And they will seem to be like, well, actually the solution, the like good exit to the right, mirror right, stage right. is, well, and then they'll say something like is, you know, a, a continual profusion of multiple selves or, you know, right. the vertiginous. I like having somewhere. those too. Yeah. Just to be clear. Yeah. Or, 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 or the vertiginous uh, play of identity all the way down or even a Vatic thing like the happiest a person can be is a schizophrenic taking a walk. And these are points at which like, look. Right. That's from Antiochus. We can say like we have to do a little bit, maybe a little bit between like descriptive and ultimate truth or the way in which these things are working. Like, yes, maybe rhetorically speaking. Okay, if we see the ego as like fascism installed on the level of the subject, 
Yeah. Right. Yeah. Then maybe sure, like the you might invoke the idea of quote unquote like some holy fool or madman or someone who doesn't respond to that as like a metaphorical alternative or as a superior option. But also schizophrenia is not a metaphor, right? A psychotic experience is a tremendously distressing thing. And right. we don't want to valorize that naively. Instead, what, what Lacan does here, and it does have a kind of like a, I'm thinking about how you were building Abby to like his being like, well, now I've got something else, right? As after he set up all these examples of, of Anna Freud, Freud's, you know, progeny and supposed heir, right? Or Melanie Klein, the dissident figure, who, you know, is exploring the interior world of children, but who he thinks is actually just projecting concepts into the baby and doing a type of epistemic violence. And also, as he set himself in distinction to these ego psychologists who are doubling down on the problem and who he sees as basically just like, you know, monetizing mental health in this sort of like cruel way that might or might not also lead to fascism. He presents himself as being like, well, if earlier it was baby saying, it me. Now he's like, baby, it's me. And I'm going to tell you what the deal is. This is what real <laughs> psychoanalysis is. And, and, and here he- How long did you have that yeah. stored up for? <laughs> I just came to me imminently. But, but the point here is that like what he does is he now says, well, if we grant that this is inevitable, yeah. right? So, so if, if now instead we're not looking for an exit from the mirror stage, but understand that on the level of how it describes the inscription of alterity in the subject, there literally is no exit. Yeah. Right. What is the other possibility? And if there are bad psychoanalyses that are orthopedic, that basically reproduce this type of alienation, right? So now like health is you go home and you're like, I am a good housewife. I'm going to be a good housewife. God damn it. I'm going to be a right housewife, right? Right, right? That these are just, you know, bad, toxic. They, they actually lock you into what you were, pre that they, they present as health, what you were previously experiencing as a problem. Then the question is, what is his psychoanalysis do? How does it operate? How might it offer an, a diff, if not a ethical answer or alternative, but some sort of reconfiguration of the problem? And that's where he's about to go. Can I just say, I was thinking about his critique of ego psychology, and especially now that you're articulating in terms of like ego equals health or like intact um, or integrated ego equals health. Um, I was, I'm teaching, uh, I'm teaching Nietzsche right now. And uh, as we were reading Nietzsche's attempt at a self-criticism, which is something he appended to uh, his book, The Birth of Tragedy, 16 years after he wrote it. And there's this line, you'll have, I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing mostly. Um, I don't have the book in front of me, but it's something like, we'll have to ask the psychiatrist, is there such a thing as a neurosis of health? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I was like, oh, that's that's kind of like exactly... What what Lacan is 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 getting at? Yeah, here. Th there's a very funny paper I sometimes assign to my students, which I think it was composed in the run up to the DSM five that uses DSM style criteria to argue that happiness is actually a pathological condition that can be differentially diagnosed and is comparatively <laughs> rare. Uh, wow. And a lot of it involves like unrealistic expectations, over too much self confidence, a weird contagious thing. Like it's an ironic tongue in cheek thing, right? But we'll drop it in the show notes. Now we finally arrive at what I think are like the most beautiful parts of the essay, but also like the most profound philosophical implications of it, or at least working with it insofar as that, well, there are lots of critiques of the Cartesian Cogito. Sure. Right. And he, he promised big. 
right? And he also layered on all these metaphors from biology to development and pediatrics to uh, religion to uh, classical mythology and myths of destiny to uh, the political stakes of identity and identification in the world of nationalisms in the 20th century and beyond. You forgot castles. And castles and castles and 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 an entire like Christmas songs worth of animals that you could buy for somebody, (laughs) right? Uh, He now suggests that perhaps, and here we're returning to that we of the we of psychoanalytic experience, we offer something different, he seems to say. At this intersection of nature and culture, so obstinately scrutinized by the anthropology of our times, psychoanalysis alone recognizes the knot of imaginary servitude that love must always untie anew or sever. For such a task, we can find no promise in altruistic feeling. We who lay bare the aggressiveness that underlies the activities of the philanthropist, the idealist, the pedagogue, and even the reformer. These are remarkably two sentences here, right? The first one situates psychoanalysis, or at least the psychoanalysis that Lacan is selling here, as, well... If what the story of the mirror stage tells us and what the examples of Lacan's version of ego psychology or of predatory systems of social reproduction suggest is a subject who is continually, so to speak, enthralled to imaginary constructions of self, but also to imposed narratives of who it must be and who it must become, etc., Psychoanalysis, well, recognizes that constitutive knot mm-hmm. and takes the work of actually changing that as to be a kind of love, of severing that knot, but also of retying it or of this work of continually working back and forth, right, is a, is a caring gesture. But it's a difficult caring gesture insofar as that, among other things, well, we, if we do this, and this is, you know, callbacks to Freud. Uh, you know, apocryphally bringing the United States the plague. If, we, if we're serious about the theory of the subject, that would involve us thinking very critically about the idealizations or fictions of self, the authenticity logics that determine even people who we admire or even systems of thought that we admire. We yeah. want to assess how, do the, how might they both reflect this trap, but speak to us in terms of how we are constituted by this trap, Yeah. right? So these are all these, the reformer, the teacher, the philanthropist, they're all like, this is what the human is. This is who you are. Allow me to help you find your true self. Let me get you, let me get you to the promised land, mm-hmm. right? These are all things that Lacan says, well, we're gonna, you're going to wind up feeling a little differently about those people and their appeal if we do, if we do psychoanalysis in the mode I want to do it. And that brings us to the final and I think the most haunting line of the essay. Yeah, you love this line. I love it. Where he's giving you, you know, what is it, what is it that Lacanian psychoanalysis can, can offer? In the subject-to-subject recourse we preserve, psychoanalysis can accompany the patient to the ecstatic limits of the thou art that, where the cipher of his mortal destiny is revealed to him. But it is not in our sole power as practitioners to bring him to the point where the true journey begins. So how about, so that thou art that, mm-hmm. right? It's powerful. And it's, it's, a, it's a line that's hard to, the entire line, it's, the entire line itself is sort of, is so overdetermined with language that is mystical and religious. 
Well, it's actually from the Upanishads, um, the Thou Art That. It's from Advaita Vedanta, um, and, and it's about the, the, we've been talking so much about the, the, the co, how the self does not coincide with the self. This is, this is about the self, Atman, uh, as, as being in, in a meaningful way, contiguous with, with Brahman, with the universe, right? So there is this, the individual self as, as resonating and, and in indeed being isomorphic with the structure of the universe there. It's like the, the sort of er example of not only I could, do I coincide with myself, but I also fit in this world. Note that, that whatever the role of the psychoanalyst is here, they're not taking you to that moment of like literal, like to like truth and just being like, okay, that's who you really are. Right. 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 Uh, this is who you were all along. Buddy, no, no, no. You were this other type of other, right? It's not a discourse of top down giving someone a new, corrected, better, superior, more adaptive, more orthopedic uh, vision of who they are or should be, nor still is it like the delivery of mystical truth in like some sort of guru kind of mode, like I'm going to hand this to you, Mm -hmm. nor still is it a ratification of these previously troped ideas of like either biological destiny or of like predestination in the religious sort of Protestant sense, or as it, the, the perils of assumption of taking something on in its Catholic senses either. Right. There are all these ways in which like, the search for identity or the search for self-identity is now taking on the broadest possible tonalities. And Lacan is saying, I'm not going to give you a definite answer or psychoanalysis is not going to give you a definite answer, but it's going to do something else. I keep thinking about this gestalt. If you look at a a brand new connect the dots page and it's just dots and that's it. But then without using a pen or a marker, your ability to guess what the image is that the dots are wanting you to draw would be like forming that gestalt in your mind of these dots. But otherwise, they are just dots on a page. There's something about to experience yourself as an individual would be to recognize yourself as just the dots on the page. And the act of connecting those dots is the act of like metabolizing history and future through lenses of interpretation that are given to you by the other, or lenses of expectation and interpretation that are given to you by the other. The figure in those dots, right, is a fiction. But also, we live in time and we assume these fictions, these destinies have consequences for us. And so you can't totally redraw that dot thing from scratch. Like your face is aged in certain ways or you've taken on scars. But you can potentially reorient a little bit you can shape it up. So how do you read this, the very final part of this? The true journey, right? That like, you know, it's not in our soul power as practitioners to bring him, him, the patient, to the point where the true journey begins. Lacan has been making sort of a mockery of any idea of the idea of, or, or, or of any sense of like the true self, you know, since we, since we began this essay many, many years ago <laughs> now. So how do you read this last bit about the point where the true journey begins? I think with an eye towards like the ethical stakes that this essay built towards, 
And with uh, an eye towards this tragic drama of like a subject being continually searching for a thing that they are not, or like mislocating or misdirecting their energies to variously shore up or locate or put back together a constraining vision of self that is actually more often than not given to them by other people. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important. That what we're talking about here is a recognition of the contingency of those different appeals or those different like interpolations into logics of identity and a kind of recognition of the destinies or identities that you have entered into or even accepted as though they were naturally given. Mm -hmm. And now what you get to do is you can inventory those and as opposed to simply taking them to be who you are and who you have to be, you can now choose them as possibilities of ways you can go, but your relationship to that is not necessarily one of insufficiency trying to achieve, yeah, but yeah. rather like crossing over or like cutting through them, what you might call traversing. Yeah. It's a kind of loosening up. Yeah. Think about it in the sense, like, I don't want to give too crude examples, right? But one of them might just be like, well, if people have been telling you that you have to be a particular way your entire life. You've thought to understand yourself as, I don't know, a patriotic American serviceman, right? Or a, a sinful lesbian who can only ever, you know, attain the like entrance into heaven if you maintain a straight marriage within a restrictive Christian fundamentalist church. Or that you're always going to be a fuck up. That these are things that are, well, they weigh on you, right? Sometimes they're, you know, they may be like, oh, you're always the best, right? And of course that can haunt you in other ways too. Mm -hmm. And there's narcissism is an element in this paper. We can talk about that. And when we talk about narcissism, we'll come back to it. But here he really seems to be being like, here are all these different identifications and traps that you've been in. And you've spent so much energy exerting yourself against these strictures and trying to be this thing, trying to prove, trying to, trying to either prove to yourself that you're something or to prove to other people that you're something, that now at least you can redistribute those energies elsewhere. And I, I think here, you know, to give an, an example about like how this is painful, right? And why people are thankless. He says it's a thankless thing sometimes, right? Is that you've, imagine like an animal, it's caught in a trap, yeah. right? It's biting in all sorts of directions. It may bite you when you try and let it out. And then when you let it out, you, you don't necessarily know where it's going to go. You, you don't like literally put it in another trap. Where it goes is where it's going to go. But it's, it's even more difficult and painful than that because, well, sure, these identity categories aren't real in some sense. Like there is no like, I don't know, I don't know what they power Captain America on, but there isn't like an essential essence of true American or like mighty chlorians that make you into a patriotic Jedi or something, right? There isn't yeah. like a, a thing. But still, we spend a lot of our lives trying to be certain things and we make choices that are real, that um, have consequences for our, our finite and infallible bodies and our, our, our frail uh, efforts to love and care and, and experiment. And we make choices and commitments to other people. And part of the, 
the pain of like recognizing how many of those choices that you made may not have been fully, well, that they may have been choices that were made for you or choices that you didn't realize you were making. But in any event, they were choices that you did make in terms of the consequences is that instead of giving you like this impossible new freedom where it's like, okay, now you're going to go back and become that baby and you're going to love your body again. Right. Or you're going to be that schizophrenic taking a walk and everything's hunky dory. You now have to, well, possibly do things like mourn things that you couldn't have become. You have to recognize the situation in which you're in, right? You are, you are that, you, are, you have to, maybe you're going to leave that marriage and that's what you need to do and that's your choice and good for you, but you'll never be 18 again. You won't find that soulmate or whatever that you thought you were, because, et cetera, right? There are entire pathways themselves that get mourned. Yeah. And that, I think, also raises the possibility, and this is another one for us to think about, that a person could have a experience of being like, okay, these are these identity categories which have caused me so much pain. And now I understand them and I'm still going to choose them or I'm going to choose them even more. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the ethical complexity or like the ethical problem, which is like a problem of living of psychoanalysis as, for, as, as I think anybody conceives it too. I don't think this is just about Lacan, right? Which is that at the end of the day, you can help a person develop more capacities for reflection, for insight for changing their relationships or for changing how they relate to their relationships above all to themselves. Mm -hmm. But you can't guarantee outcomes and you can't make them do anything and you can't undo the past. But you exist now in a position of, well, authenticity is hard to talk about here now, right? But at least you are more in tune with it and you are less deluded by it. And that way, there's something very classically Freudian here too, right? Because for the Freudian injunction, well, one, there's the Hippocratic Oath. You heal the person regardless of what you might or might not dislike about them, right? That the person who decides that they want to stay closeted or the, or the person who decides that actually, yes, I'm, I'm an airman who instead of doing a protest, I'm going to get into a plane and, and pull a John McCann and, and you know, after I see what napalm does to people, I'm going to go napalm some more people, right? People make their choices. But at least it's not stuck. At least it's not always the same choice. And now at least it's your choice. It seems to me, just listening to you, that you find something both honest and sort of, I hesitate to say like liberatory because that's almost too hopeful, but let's at least say like freeing or loosening up here. Is that, is that right? It's not a coincidence, I think, that, well, when he writes about, when he invokes the concept of the mirror stage, uh, a figure like Franz Fanon will talk about it in terms of the alienations that are imposed by racist colonialism on the colonized subject. Yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I also don't think it's a coincidence either that when Winnicott will talk about the mirror stage, he'll do that to describe certain forms of like failed mirroring, but also of like basically kind of sad developmental cases where a child identifies with, you know, what the parents want them to be over yeah. and against what the parents should be attending to in terms of who they are. Mm -hmm. I think that, if we read this paper as being about recognition, identity, and alienation, and, and the power of those things in the broadest senses, from alienation of undercapital to the alienation of, of, of you know, Shea Fanon to the alienations of like, well, that feeling when you look at the photo of your family and you're like, wow, I wish I, wish I had been there. And actually, I wish I had, the there I had been was a place which is 
not actually the place where I was that was photographed, right? Yeah, yeah. That you are now disabused of certain illusions or you rather have the capacity to, now that you can see what alienation is, you can embark on this difficult work of, well, you know, phenomenal, we call it disalienation. Right. Or we might call it perhaps something like finding solidarity in others. Because it's not like that basic problem of the self-understanding mediation through others is solved. It's not solved. You no. never exit the mirror stage in that sense. Right. But now, at least, instead of relating to others through terms of, well, you have to be this, you're an American, or like, you can't talk to them, or like, how you, you, you're a productive member of society, you're a worker, you should step over that homeless person. On some level, changing how you relate to yourself can change how you relate to others, or acknowledging the anxieties that other people have over their own identities, or hell, acknowledging the ways in which even recognition of identity category can come with its own pains or insufficiencies or not fix certain things. Mm -hmm. That could allow us to form new coalitions or at least to interact with one another in ways that both produce gains in certain structures, that produce gains in terms of recognition and, and identification of various categories, but that also gives us an ongoing resource of connecting with one another through the engagement with, well, non-identity, but also our desires to identify right. and open up new identifications. And that's a work of psychoanalysis. And, and we could either see psychoanalysis as having a role in that in a broader radical project, or we could see the radical project as involving some sort of working through of those issues. Well, if, I mean, if recognition is always misrecognition, you can read that as, as a cause for despair. And you're allowed to, <laughs> we're not going to stop yeah. you. Right. Um, but, but I think Patrick following the line of thinking that, that, that you are, what that actually can produce is, is also a sort of the recognition that one's perception of the other and the self is always going to be, is not, is, is non-identical with, you know, some sort of real version of all of those others, of the many myriad others that surround you. That there can be, and I mean this word in in none of its Christian valences, um, a certain amount of grace that emerges from that idea. If instead of being sort of wedded to the idea of like, I see you, I understand you, I see you, I see myself, I understand myself, that there's again this sort of like loosening. Um, if you understand that baked into all of those interactions with intraself and also um, interpersonal and political, that that sense that there's there's always going to be an otherness, there's always going to be misrecognition. That's, there's actually a cert, certain um, flexibility and, and solace and, and a sense of letting the other be other. It, it allows us to work more gracefully with concepts like identity or identity claims, right? Simultaneously to honor the anxieties or needs that can underwrite them and the need to redress them, but also to understand the ways in which those can form certain types of traps. It allows us to, and I think this is probably even the more important thing, to recognize the ways in which we are constantly being recruited into narratives of who we are that actually produce real antagonisms and yes. perpetuate them. Yeah. 
right? And I think on some very basic level, what this does and what I think reading this essay in the way we have can affect, if only as like a poetic exercise or as a, as a tearing with a fable or lingering with a difficult thought. And, slow, and I think you have to slow down to see this, right? And to, to get this sense and you have to both slow down to see it, but then you have to be able to return to that sense that basically things don't have to be this way. You do not have to be the way that you are. The people around you are also struggling or variously denying their struggling or resolving their struggling problematically with the anxieties of who they are and how the world is. There is a tremendous amount of contingency in the world. And if we were able to see past how much we are given as newness is actually repetition and how much we are given as choices is actually a ratification of things that are beyond our control and which we have no choice over, then we can connect with one another and, and imagine new possibilities without that same element of fundamentally fixed, captured, tragic predetermination. Thank you for listening to Ordinary Unhappiness. If you would like to unlock two more episodes per month, you can join us at patreon.com slash ordinary unhappiness. This podcast is entirely supported by our Patreon members. Um, we deeply, deeply appreciate your support and also your rating and reviewing us on Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred podcast platform is. We will be back next week with the standard edition. The Fleece Chronicles will continue and Freud is having some issues with identity. He's really worried that everything he has thought up until now is wrong. So you're not going to want to miss it. See you then. This has been an episode of Ordinary Unhappiness, a podcast about psychoanalysis, politics, pop culture, and the ways we suffer now. I'm Abby Kluchin, and today I was joined by Patrick Blanchfield and Dan Yowell. This podcast is produced by Dan Yowell. Theme music by Formal Chicken.